This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by Noble Knight, where out of print is available again, and listeners like you. Thanks for using The Tome's Amazon and DM's Guild affiliate links. Hi, this is Wolfgang Bauer, author of Forge of War, Expedition to the Demon Web Pits, and a whole lot of independent games you probably don't know. You don't listen to The Tome, you're a sad, sorry man. Welcome to the Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm your co-host, Sam Dillon. I'm filling in for Tracy while she acclimates to life with a new baby and tries to get some sleep sometime this year or something. And in this episode, number 269, we've kickstarted our games into high gear with hundreds of new monsters as we examine the Tome of Beasts. Also joining us in this review is fellow Tome Show host, James Intercasso, from the Roundtable, Gamer to Gamer, and on its own site, the Have Spellbook Will Travel podcast. Welcome, sir. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, as always. And also joining us is a Tome Show alum who's appeared on many episodes of the Roundtable, as well as some episodes around here. Uh, and, and, and all kinds of other things. Give a warm welcome to Liz Ties. Hi there. Or Liz the Is, as I always, always think of it. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it's good to have you both back, and thank you for joining us. Uh, and thank you all the more, because later in the episode, you're going to hear from both James and Liz, who will be interviewing some of the people responsible for the Tome of Beast, friends of the show Wolfgang Bauer and Dan Dillon. But before we jump into the discussion, we should mention our sponsor, Noble Knight. They've been with us for years, and they are not only super supportive of the show, but are also a great store for finding both in-print and out-of-print material. And since we're reviewing a Cobalt Press book, and since it has notes about how some of its creatures fit into their Midgard setting, and since a lot of creatures are very well tied to the Arabian part of that setting, and, uh, by the way, that's known as the Southlands, and I think our pick of the episode should be the Southlands campaign setting, which, you know, it's technically designed for Pathfinder, but it is full of setting material that is system neutral and therefore useful for any fantasy RPG game. Currently, it is $10 off the normal price at Noble Knight, and this massive hardcover setting book is only $40. Check it out and let them know that the Tome Show sent you. Before we jump into our discussion and review of the Tome of Beasts, uh, I think it's we should have a, a round of disclosures because there's various things that, in fairness, I think would be good to disclose. I think James and Liz and I, if I remember our conversations correctly, all backed the product on Kickstarter. Is that right? That is correct. 
That is correct. All right. And so we are all paying customers, although it should be noted that James, as part of the Kickstarter, was given the opportunity to pitch a monster and had it accepted and so is actually a contributor to the book um, and has a monster in the book. So that may bias your opinion, right? That is correct. I paid <laughs> for the book, but I was paid $5 for Ooh. my monster submission. That was Did you frame that fiver? <laughs> I came via PayPal, so... Oh. <laughs> print out the little receipt. Yeah, print out the PayPal receipt and frame it. Uh, and Sam, you got a review copy of the book, yes? Well, Wolfgang Bauer is such a great guy and just a nice gentleman, and he did give me a PDF review copy. The first book I have ever gotten as a review copy to review on the Tome Show. I al almost, uh, or not even, not even almost, every other time I've ever reviewed anything on the Tome Show, I have purchased the product. But Wolfgang Bauer said, you know what, Sam, here you go. <laughs> and so I accepted that, and Wolfgang, thank you very much. This was a was a wonderful gift. There you go. Hooked you up. Uh, and I was also reading from PDF. Sam and Liz, PDF or print? PDF. Uh, both. Ooh. Nice. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I meant Liz and James, but James, oh. PDF for friends. And... Uh, I, too, am reading from both. Okay, okay. So I only have the PDF. I don't have the physical product to to um, to examine well, he, as well. So Here's a spoiler alert. I'm going to buy the physical product. Ooh, Ooh okay. Nice. Ooh, okay. That gives uh, us an idea of where you're coming from. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I was so sold on this Kickstarter that I actually got the, like, super fancy Uber cover edition. Ooh. Um, so, Ooh, uh, very nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which looks great. Looks really, really good. Right on. All right, so let's start with with an easy sort of uh, wor work our way into this book product. For, first of all, I suppose for people who, who may not know... Uh, let's talk about what the Toma Beast is. It is it is simply without any introduction, really, uh, just a big giant tome of four hundred and some monsters. Right? It's basically a, a big spanking new monster manual. Yeah. Right. All right. Yeah. So so that's where it is. It was kickstarted. Uh, it has a handful of contributions um, from those who kickstarted. I believe the idea was that what did they take? I'm spitballing maybe twenty contributors and each one contributed like one monster out of the 400 yeah. and some so most of them were were um done by the kobold press guys uh led by steve winter who for a long time was at watsi helping develop uh fifth edition so he knows the edition pretty well um although i i understand a lot of the um the monsters are conversions from some of their other work in in third edition and pathfinder mm -hmm. um, so i think there's a lot of that going on yep. as well um, so let's let's ease into it, having introduced sort of what we're dealing with. Uh, what is everybody's favorite creature in the book? Uh, let's start with Liz. She's talked to the least so far. <laughs> well, um, honestly, I'm a little surprised with my answer, but I actually fell in love with the clockwork monsters and creatures, uh, probably because that sort of very similar to our, our thematic for an upcoming part of the uh, campaign that I'm running. Um, and I, I had 
I have my players going to basically a dwarven cavern um, that's been long since abandoned. And I was like, what am I going to do there? Um, and I saw all the clockwork monsters and really honed in on the beetle swarm. So I'm pretty excited to put that into my game and into my campaign. And I feel like anytime you see something and it jumps out and gets your creative juices flowing, that's, that's a good entry. Mm, there you go. Yeah, I actually used... Um I think almost all of the clockwork creatures in this book, uh, like it was the very first thing I jumped into because I'm doing this uh, post-apocalyptic fantasy earth setting and the players had reached a point where they were going into like an old factory where the gear forged were invented or at least being researched or whatever, which is a big deal because one of the characters is a gear forged, uh, which we, he plays as a, a, a more advanced sort of old Japanese robot sort of thing. Uh, and nice. so, and so, yeah. Just as they were going into the factory, and I'm like, "Oh, how am I going to prep for this?" And I had gone through the monster manual, and I'd found all these sort of monsters that I could reskin as different kinds of robots and and centuries and what have you. Uh, and then Tova Beast lands in my inbox, and it's like, "Ooh, there's a whole section on Clockworks." And I think I fit every single or almost every single of the Clockwork creatures in, except for the Clockwork Beetle, only because I I use the Clockwork Beetle Swarm that you, that you just mentioned instead. Uh, so all of a sudden in one session, I just I just hit all those clockwork things. That's so, yeah. what I'm planning on doing. So yeah, there you go. That's a, it's a good it's a good one. I particularly was intrigued by the um, oh I forget the specific name, but it's the one that like does the the sewing and things. It has the the big shears on one end and the needle on the other that it does the sewing, the sort of the spider thing. Uh, because it has this ability with its shears that when it attacks you, it, it, it you run the risk of it like slicing up your clothes and things, and suddenly your armor falls off and is broken. Right? <laughs> is that the clockwork weaving spider? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's awesome. So there you go. Well, I totally didn't mean to jump all over your pick, Liz, but there you go. <laughs> no, it's fine. It m makes me feel better about my pick. It's like, yeah. all right, yeah, other people like this too. Mm -hmm. Sam. Favorite creature? <sighs> There's so many. Um, <laughs> That's right. You said I, you had like five, and I'm going to make you narrow it down. I, I, have, I have like a giant page of notes about all the different cool stuff. Um, I'm going to go with something uh, that sounds very mundane, and it is the white ape. And uh, for those of you following along nice at home, it's on, page, it's on page 408. And the reason I like it so much is that this is totally something I would use in my game. I would completely steal this and put it in my setting. Um, it's a. It seems like it's going to be, oh, here's this mundane you know, creature that has some kind of intelligence, but the backstory is so cool. Um, and uh, they, they carry this wasting disease, but it's an arcane wasting disease, mm. disease so... It it, it uh, afflicts, you know, arcane humans, basically magic users, uh, because basically uh, they are the ones that that enchanted these apes' ancestors to make them sort of become uplifted and get intelligence and that sort of thing. Uh, but because they carry this disease, it doesn't affect the apes; it only affects the arcane casters. So. Uh, basically, the apes have been driven away from anywhere where humanoids that have any kind of arcane uh, abilities are. And that's a humongous injustice. It wasn't the apes that chose you know, what happened. So that is just such a cool backstory. And that is totally the type of disease that I would use in my game and totally the type of, you know, sort of 
injustice onto an entire you know group of creatures I, I just like that kind of thing and it just seems a little mundane but yet it has this twist that makes it really cool mm-hmm. yeah white apes sort of have a long history in pulp fiction don't they or ape, mm-hmm. you know apes and white mm-hmm. apes specifically sort of have yep. this, yep. this history of being important to that type of fiction cool uh james yes sir what's your favorite creature in the tome of beasts so my favorite creature in the tome of beasts is the mordant snare uh and the mordant snare is essentially a gargantuan aberration that looks like uh you know like a 10 fingered starfish and it sits just under the dirt Uh, And it has these sort of invisible filaments that it can shoot into people um, and it sort of digests them from the inside out and then it can use their husk of a body as a puppet to kind of draw other humanoids in. Um, It's a really cool, weird creature. Uh, and one of the reasons that I like it is, you know, Liz, you were saying like clockworks because you're going to use them in your campaign. I use a lot of aberrations in the games that I am currently playing. And if you're just using the monster manual, there's actually a big dearth of high level aberrations, uh, which is a problem for me because my groups are levels 18 and level 13 right now, respectively. Mm. Um, and aberrations in the monster manual cap out around 13, 14, depending on you know uh what's in a lair and what's not and that kind of thing um so it's great for that i also love gargantuan creatures i think fighting something really big is fun and i like the the story behind these is really interesting they can't reproduce there's only a few of them left in the world and the secret to how they were made has been lost um so Mm. uh they're like these really bizarre beings that are just under the the dirt and terrifying to think about um and uh and i love throwing stuff like that at my players uh and that's one thing that i really like about the whole tome of beasts in general there are these gaps if you're just using the monster manual um and i guess we can get into that more later and this really helps fill a lot of those uh and so the morden snare is one example of that that Uh artwork is disgusting (laughs) wow (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it is. It's it's an awful, uh, terrifying, uh, chaotic, evil creature. Um, That's uh, and... page two ninety six for those of you following along. Oh yes, yeah, two ninety six in your Tome of Beast hymnals. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> right on. Uh, so my my favorite creature, I think, um, kind of surprised me because um, it's a dragon, and I don't normally go for new dragons because dragons are unique enough and there's enough variety just in the like chromatics and metallics that it's not like we're running into dragons left and right and they've become old and boring right um so i'm not usually very wowed by new dragons because i just don't need new dragons uh and then i was surprised as i was reading the void dragon to discover Mm. i really like the void dragon um these are dragons that that are wanderers of the space between the stars. It's sort of your your cosmic, almost almost Cthuloid, uh, Lovecraftian style dragons. Uh, I mean, they're very draconic in the in their appearance and what have you. But there's also just sort of a touch of the madness from from gazing into the into the unknown. 
and wandering uh, between the stars and all that. Uh, and what really, and all of that's super cool. And there's a certain level of um, I could totally envision this being one of the creatures that like the players go to in order to um, you know get information that they need, and that turning into a really interesting role playing encounter because it's also just a little bit crazy. Um, having been wandering the stars and all that. Um, and that's always fun. And then I'm reading through it and, and I look at the the collapsing star ability of the ancient Void Dragon, which, in fairness, is is a challenge rating of 24. So this is nothing to sneeze at. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, when you kill it, the dragon implodes like a, like a collapsing star. And then everything within, what is it, one mile of the dragon yep. takes, takes 55 bludgeoning damage, 55 cold damage, and 55 psychic damage. So, Or, you know, or if you want to roll, that's 10d10 of each of those. 10d10 of each of those, right. <laughs> yeah. um, and then on top of all of that, there's a saving throw... Uh, you get saving throws for each of them, and if you fail, what is it? If you fail two of the three saving throws, there is a rip, a, a rip in the planes, and you are thrown into another plane of existence as per like a plane shift spell. Which I suppose by the time you're you're fighting a, a challenge rating twenty four thing is not a huge deal. Um, but you know, if you're the fighter or the rogue, and suddenly you find yourself on another plane, it's going to be some effort made to try to figure out where you are and, and bring you back together, <laughs> right? Um, assuming that you just survived, because that's that's all happening at the end of the battle after you've just fought the dragon. If you have enough hit points left to survive that kind of explosion, um, that's already pretty impressive, right? Um, it is nothing to sneeze at, but I really like that con- that concept of it imploding and there just being this massive destruction. Like the death of one of these things is epic in itself, and the destruction runs for a mile and and lays waste to the to the area, and that you know that is something that people will note in that world. For, for ages to come, you know, that this crater was from when yeah. somebody killed a dragon and it just tore up the countryside. Well, and if you're anywhere near civilization, which you may not be, but you might be, and imagine the village yeah. or villages that you just wiped out. Oh, yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's it's the, okay, you killed me, but now here's a nuke, you know? Yeah, exactly. Right on. So, so yeah, I I was pleasantly surprised to discover how much I liked the Void Dragon. All right, so let's get into uh, strengths and weaknesses. I think we should start strengths. Um, I found myself, mm-hmm. I, I found it interesting as I was reading through it, like, my first instinct is, this is awesome, this is a book that I need. <laughs> it, it fills a lot of gaps. It gives me a lot more options. It, it, it gives me a lot of things that I really needed. And as such, as I was reading through it for review purposes, I ended up finding a lot of things to to pick at, like things that could have been better, right? Mm-hmm. But but let me – I, I kind of want to put strengths on, on Front Street here because I want to make it clear um, it's a great book and, and I got – I absolutely got my money's worth out of it, right? Yeah. Um, even though I think there are some areas where there's room for improvement. So let's talk about the strengths. What do we, what do we like? 
I think, like you said, Jeff, uh, filling the gaps. Um, you know, if you're if you're looking at the monster manual, uh, and let's say you're running an undead themed campaign, right? Uh, which is, I think, a pretty common monstrous theme for a lot of games. Um, when you hit challenge rating five uh, with your undead, your revenant, your vampire spawn, there isn't another uh, undead until challenge rating thirteen uh, in the monster manual. So you've got some issues there if you're if you're trying to fill some gaps unless you want to keep throwing lots of creatures at people right which you can do with 5e which is great uh you're gonna have to make some of your own you're gonna have to apply some templates that kind of thing uh not with the tome of beasts also in your arsenal um because there are tons of undead creatures and again that's just one example of where there's a lot of overlap for instance if you wanted to put the challenge rating 11 corpse mound into your game uh you can now do that with the tome of beasts uh although that was designed by a hack um so but uh uh, but there are uh so there's lots of gap filling measures exactly like that in here in addition i feel like there's not just by creature type but you have a lot of big creatures you've got a lot of small creatures you've got a lot of new higher level challenge rating creatures in general um which is a good thing if you play higher level games because sometimes you don't want to throw 50 hobgoblins at your players uh and you want to change it up so ultimately like there's more variety um you know you have faith that all of the creatures were play tested by many play testers which i think is is a really good thing going into this Mm -hmm. and it it doubles the size of the monster manual i mean all of those are are huge huge strengths um and i also like that there's a lot of creatures in here that just provide good story like the alehouse drake i think is this amazing (laughs) little creature that exists in alehouses that like hey you need some info maybe you go talk to the alehouse drake and they hook you Mm -hmm. up you know it's not necessarily in there to fight um it's it's in there as a story hook uh so uh, undoubtedly someone will fight it i'm sure um (laughs) but but, you know uh so the fact that there are a lot of little creatures like that i think are also is also something that is nice to have more of you can never have too many story hooks Mm -hmm. uh, and it's great to have that as well yeah I, i would agree i think uh, when we're talking about it filling sort of niches and whatever, I think um, the the niche in terms of, of themes is is probably the most poignant to me, right? Like I need Liz and I needed some clockwork stuff. This delivers. Um, if you need sort of Arabian style stuff, I think because some of a lot of it was converted from the Southlands bestiary. Um, this has a, a wealth of Arabian themed creatures, uh, which could be useful in an Arabian themed game or a de- just any random desert themed game or kind of an Egyptian flavored game. Um, there's a lot of things here that, that would be really useful for that. Um, uh, if you want to run something with Fae, like this book, it, it feels like about every other creature is some form of Fae, right? There's lots and lots of Fae options here. Not really my thing, uh, but I know. Having fey sort of stuff going on in your world is, is definitely a popular thing in the game. So I recognize that even though fey's yeah. not really my thing, I recognize that, that there is a desire for it. Fey isn't really my thing either, but they do a really cool thing, and that is that not only do they have a lot of uh, sort of fey origin creatures, but they have this whole court of fey lords and ladies that will allow you, if you want to use them in your game, to set up any kind of game that you want that can be Fae-focused. You know, you could set up 
lots of intrigue between these different lords and ladies. You, you can set it up so that they're just kind of pulling pulling strings behind the scenes and you're running sort of a more traditional, you know, fantasy, but but there's lots of fey creatures. You know, th- there's lots of different ways to utilize all the things that they have in there. So even in areas where it was, you know, like the clockwork things, I'm not a huge clockwork guy. I'm not a big fan of clockwork uh, creatures, but the clockwork creatures in here are really cool. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm not a fan of... Um, of of drakes necessarily but the little the set of drakes that they have in here are mm. so cool yeah and there's um, a lot of little a, inst- there's a lot yeah. of instances where the drakes where i was looking through and were like oh i could see where like somebody would keep these in the city like on on, on purpose like there's right. there's one there's some that just like scavenge for you know uh stray animals and and rats and things mm-hmm. i'm like that, that's great right. or or the one that lives in the chimneys you know how you would maybe keep one of those around or the alehouse drake um, all kinds of these yeah. little these little things that would work really well for just flavoring have, a high fantasy world. Yeah, but they also have you know a set of cobalts, which of course, right? Uh, cobalt okay. press, but <laughs> but but there's also a set of of ghouls, and there's a ton of small humanoid, small mammal humanoids, and also like reptilian based humanoids that um, you know talk about filling niches. You know, if you want to have you know some sort of races in your game that aren't the traditional races that you find okay goblins again you know you can have crocodile men or you can have you know rat folk or you can have you know but it's a different take on all of those they all have sort of a nice unique twist that you could use you know there's like the hedgehog people or something i mean it's really like hedgehog and badger people yeah Right. I mean, it's really, you know, it, but you can, you know, use it or don't use it. It's, you know, as with any monster manual, but there's so many little bits and all of them, almost without exception, are really well done. That's one of the things I, I loved about it is that there were just, there was so much variety that I was flipping through the book and I was just thinking of all the possibilities for, for my game, for my campaign, um, since I'm doing a sandbox, sandbox campaign right now. Um, so I'm always looking for ways to get inspired. Um, and that's just something that I really haven't felt going through other books like this from other third-party publishers. Um, I have a number that are sitting on my bookshelf, and they didn't really spark my creativity nearly as much as Tome of Beasts. So mm. I really appreciated that. Um, so I have a bunch of ideas for where I could go forward now with my players. And all of it came out of flipping through this book. Yeah, there's a and lot I, of cool you know, flavor things here. And story. There's also... Yeah, there, there's also... That's that's kind of where I was going to go with that, is with story. You know, there, I, I'm not extremely familiar with the Midgard setting. Um, I'm a little tiny bit familiar with it, but not not to the point where... You know, I don't use it as a setting in my game, so I, I don't sort of live in it. Um, so I'm not super familiar with it. And the entries in this book give you an, enough of a taste of Midgard that you get the idea of what the setting's about, at least in that particular region where that creature lives or is from. Enough that if you want to take that and use it as your own, you can. And it's not so much, though, that it seems like it's a Midgard bestiary. You yeah, know no, I mean? it doesn't. It, yeah, it's certainly, like, you can see the origins of some stuff here, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, Midgard has a big, like, 
Lovecraftian sort of area, and so you get that there's a lot of sort of Lovecraftian sort of inspired things in it. Um, Midgard has the Southlands, which is very Arabian, so you get where all of that's coming from, right? Uh, and and the mm-hmm. Fae and the Shadow Fae and all that kind of thing stuff is a big deal in Midgard as well. So you you understand where that's coming from, and so you can see the you can see the the connections between the previous work that they've done. But but while you see those connections, like the actual entries themselves themselves don't make it feel like these are monsters for Midgard, um, just that they were monsters inspired by different parts of Midgard. The only part that ever specifically references Midgard is usually like some of them will have a little uh, uh, sidebar. And and by little, I mean most of them are actually very, very little with mm-hmm. this this tiny sidebar of, you know, this is how this, this is where this thing fits into to Midgard if you're kind of curious or if you're playing a Midgard world or whatever, you want to support that. But as like you, Sam, uh, I'm, I'm familiar with Midgard. We reviewed the original campaign setting once upon a time. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm aware, I'm, I'm familiar with it, but I've never really run or played in Midgard. Um I kind of scan those those sidebars every now and then just out of interest to see sort of how this would fit into a world. Uh, but I don't feel compelled to at all. Like it totally makes sense without any of those sidebars. Right. And then there's stuff that's like little – like the dog mole. It talks about its relationship with dwarves because dwarves domesticated it, that creature, and they like take it mining with them or something. I mean just stuff like that that's not even – you know. I mean that's that's a throwaway line if you want it to be, but it, you could integrate that into your own setting if even if you weren't in Midgard. That's that's a good example of you know that's obviously something that happened in Midgard and is part of you know the history of that creature. But you know it, it's it's like saying humans domesticated dogs on Earth. You know it. Right. it Okay, you know, it's it's still relatively generic, you know. Although the dog mole gets really interesting on like the very next page when they talk about the dog mole juggernaut, where the Darrow, the, <laughs> de- the deep dwarves, <laughs> right. have also domesticated them, yes. but then like mutated yes. them and turned them into to massive creatures of war. Right. What do you guys think about the art? We're still talking uh, about strengths. So yes. I guess I guess I'm asking. I guess I'm asking which do you think is the coolest art? <laughs> uh, I mean, I think Cobalt does uh, uh, a lot of things very well. Uh, I certainly have some critiques of the art as well, um, but I, you know, I think they do a, a creepy monster real well. Um, you know, all of their all of their things that are supposed to be creepy and scary are usually pretty creepy and scary mm-hmm. uh, and intimidating. So uh, I. I, I definitely appreciate that about them. And I also think, you know, uh, for a lot of these creatures, um, you get a lot of really uh, good, like, hey, this is this is a cool depiction of this thing. It helps me visualize it, you know, mm-hmm. um, for, for the most part. Uh, like, I didn't see a lot of scale issues or, or things like that mm-hmm. as I was uh, as I was going through. Um, so those are, the, you know, I think the art is great. It's very evocative. I like the style uh, for the most part. Uh, we can get into sexy naked women later. Yes, we can, because that's one of my notes as well. Um, yeah, uh, I actually have a, a few pieces that I really liked. Um, the the Forest Hunter and the Bear Folk art were just fantastic. Um, so there, I think there was one artist I could sort of tell by their little signature that wasn't really a signature that I really mm-hmm. liked. Um, but it, no, yeah, just mm-hmm. uh, that one artist was definitely my favorite. 
Okay, yeah, no, I think the art uh, in terms of quality was at least as good as anything I, I would see. I would expect to see from a, a Watsi Monster Manual, um, which is is which is not nothing. I mean, most independent publishers can't keep up with you know a, a Watsi or a Paizo in terms of what they can pay and, and the level of artists that they can afford. Uh, if I even compare this art to uh, what Kobold put together for the Tyranny of Dragons adventures, because they, they were the studio that did that for Watsi, uh, mm-hmm. but they were in charge of all the art assets and all that. Um, the art in this is significantly better than that. There were some some issues with some of the art pieces I felt in that one. Um, yeah. But, but the art here is, is pretty phenomenal. Oh, yeah, totally. And one of the things that's really cool art-wise... Uh, that uh, that I just wanted to bring up is the there's so pretty much every monster has a picture right um, and then even when you like get to the NPC section most of the NPCs have a picture yeah. which is not a thing in the monster manual yeah Watsi doesn't um, do that yeah yeah and what's cool is that they have the picture of the monster and then in like the background of the page the, it is the same image blown up reversed and a little bit. Uh, translucent did they do uh, that on all of the pages for the print version because they only did that for a few entries in the pdf uh the sort it, of they did it for version? most of them if the, if it was a weird creature uh or if it was small or part of a group of creatures on a page they wouldn't do it but uh yeah it looks like they did it for most of them okay because i only yeah it looks like almost all of them I only yeah. remember seeing it for it might have been like the devils or the demon lords or something like that, but I don't I don't remember seeing it for most. Yeah, well, and for the PDF, it might be a printer friendly right. issue, right? So, right, that makes sense. I'm trying to yeah, flip looks, through and find multi. It looks pretty. Monsters. It looks pretty prevalent, but there are some where it's it's obvious. Now that I'm looking for it, it's obvious that it's not there. But um, I do think it's you know probably greater than eighty percent. They did that okay. on. Well, and in fairness, I don't notice it as much because, uh, and this is a good thing, um, most of the monsters pretty easily fit onto a page, which as a DM, that's huge. Not having to flip pages, especially as a DM using it on on a PDF, not having to flip pages back and forth uh, while I'm trying to run one creature is, is nice. The times that I have to do that drive me crazy. I'm spoiled by my old fourth edition uh, with uh, the compendium days when I would just you know, mm-hmm. do screen grabs or whatever of all the monster blocks, and I would just print out a page of every monster I need and, and have it all on one page for every creature in the in the encounter, right? Um, and so right. the idea of sl- f- having to flip back and forth to find um, monsters for my encounters is becoming tiresome, and the idea of having to flip back and forth with for one monster within an encounter is even more uh, tiresome to me. Okay, so I, I think... So far, we have a very positive view. So let let's hear some negatives, you guys. Let's let's well, well uh, Sam. Let let's, I know let's you, make I, it a true a true review. <laughs> well, before we do that, uh, yes. James, you and I have the uh, physical copy, and mm-hmm. I wrote a whole paragraph talking about how um, I really appreciate the production values that went into this book. 
Uh, so yes. I don't know. I don't know if you have any comments on this as well. But uh, you know, Jeff and Sam can sort of take us. Uh, back seat to this with their PDFs there. <laughs> although, although uh, see, the, the, I, I was gonna do I was gonna do negative stuff in the middle and end with a lot of positive, not a lot more. <laughs> oh, but the, the, oh, the okay. PDF yeah. has features worth mentioning as well. Actually, yes, so, is, that is true as well. Yes. Fair enough. Well, <laughs> but, I already did my segue. So. No, but I'm, I'm gonna let <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna let Liz and James take it away for a few minutes. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, so for me, I was impressed with I mean the weight and and. Uh, the paper used. I know that's getting a little uh, nitty gritty, but I was just impressed with the quality of this book. It it was on par with um, the the player's handbook, the monster manual, all of that. Um, you know, you don't have the gloss to the pages that like you see in the monster manual, but this thing is hearty, and I'm just major kudos to Cobalt Press for for this book. And I know James has a more fancy copy, uh, <laughs> but. <laughs> I'm guessing that that it's the same for you. Yeah, yeah. I, and as far as I can tell, the the fancy copy has a different cover and has these two uh, bookmarks attached to it, and that's about the difference. Um, so, oh yeah, yeah, still very fancy. Uh, and uh, but yeah, I I totally agree. I think this is right on par with um, the stuff that you get from Watsi. And, uh, you know, in, in some ways, I think even better. Uh, it feels better bound to me. I, I did say, have my... Talk to me in two years I... and tell me if the pages are falling out. <laughs> I, I did notice the binding. It seems very secure. Okay. Yes. Yeah, my monster yeah. manual is starting to come apart like other people's players' handbooks did early on. So, Oh, if you uh, write to them, because that happened to me, and they'll send oh, yeah. you a new one with the errata in it. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I, I totally agree, Liz. I think that when I got this book, I was super duper impressed. Um, you know, and I expect a lot out of Cobalt based on some other products I have for them. But I think this is probably one of the nicest things that I have ever gotten from Cobalt uh, or for anything fifth edition related. Honestly, it's it's great. And it's chock full of just, uh, you know, beautiful beautiful art and uh like you said bound very well um put together very made the heft is good the paper is good uh so i uh and it's it feels like um good to use at the table you know like i can't wait to kind of show up to a game with it and put it on the table and have my players quake with fear uh, and it's nice nice big thunk yeah yeah exactly <laughs> exactly like guess what's in here a bunch of monsters you haven't read about yet <laughs> <laughs> yeah and well and and since we're talking medium the pdf uh is well designed as well um mm -hmm. i i particularly like that the both there's there's a table of contents at the front and then there is a listing of creatures by by challenge rating in the back so if you're looking for something around a certain power level you can easily find them and all of them are linked uh to the point that you know i'm looking through the table of contents and i want to see what the white ape that james was talking about looks like i can just tap white ape, ape and it takes me straight to the page and it loads quickly uh, and runs really well. Uh, I know that from talking to Wolfgang at Gen Con um, that they were delayed in delivering the PDF for a, a little while because um, it was too big, right? They were trying to find a way to, <laughs> to get the file size to a point that it would be um, more easily uh, downloaded and used by, by people who purchased the product. Um, but, you know, it's there's... How many? There's... there's 
433 pages full of monsters here, uh, full of you know detailed art and all that kind of stuff. It, it took up a, a large file size, and so they were trying to find a way to get it down. Um, and I think it, it came together pretty well. So. Well, in addition to the linking, it also has the bookmarks. So, you know, when you all were talking about your favorite monsters, I was able to just go into the bookmarks and, you know, go to the letter mm -hmm. of the monster and go down to the monster. It was super easy. And this is the sort of stuff that I was talking about in our live show at Gen Con around mm -hmm. PDFs is if you're going to do a PDF, make it usable for people at the table and have this linking, have this bookmarks. And it shows that that level of care for, you know, beyond <laughs> when you deliver it um and and show it makes makes it easier for for people when they're you know running running the game and and throwing these monsters at their players yeah absolutely all right any yeah. other uh conversation about sort of the medium are we ready to talk so. are we ready to talk about uh areas for improvement sure <laughs> Who wants to start? Who's who's got something itching that they want to mention? Uh, I mean, let's. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> we already mentioned uh, sexy naked women, and uh -huh. I certainly think there are larger offenders of that for sure. Yes. But I also uh -huh. think that, like, come on, guys. Uh, well, there's even a couple of situations where I know they're pulling from historical creatures. For instance, right. the the Lorelei. Uh, and how many, first of all, how many creatures are there that are women that lure men to their deaths? This was a just a disturbing phenomena I was not aware of. Uh, yeah, no, there, there, there's a lot, and all, almost all of them are water-based. Yeah. In, in this book, there's at least three different water-based seductresses. <laughs> Uh, and, and and what was unnecessary necessarily, while the, while the original lore or legend that is based on might have been women luring and seducing men, there's no reason that couldn't have been reversed as well. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And right, the fact that exactly. there are three specific water-based seductresses targeting men um, was a bit redundant. Like, I, how many well, of those do I really need in my campaign? Exactly. Well, and if you want to have a water-based seductress, like maybe I don't know, uh, you could you could have her not be totally naked. Like I guess we assume then that all men in the D and D world are idiots and wouldn't assume a trap if they just saw a naked woman approach them. Like <laughs> you know what I mean? Like lounging so on a rock in a river. Yeah. 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 There's that. And then for instance, the mirager is actually called out as could be a a lovely man or woman, and they chose to go half-naked lady, even though they already had a bunch of other half-naked ladies. And the uh -huh. thing that is, I think, hard about that for me is, so uh, my wife, uh, who I've talked about on the podcast before, is getting ready to play her first Dungeons & Dragons game. Um, and we've been talking about her elf ranger character that she's going to make. And last night, she sat down and she Google image D&D elf ranger. Oh, kind of. Oh dear. Uh, you know, like, like find something to, to put on the character sheet and, and maybe find a mini and she had to scroll down like a long time and I was like, uh oh, the internet might have ruined this for me, yeah. you know? Um, so, uh, so I, I, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, it may not seem like that's a big deal, but I do feel like it is kind of a big deal to have, uh, to have a lot of sexy women in the sense that it could turn somebody off from the game, which is yeah. never a thing. And, and, uh, when you interview Wolfgang, ask him about that. I asked him about it uh, at Gen Con, and, and um, so he ha he's aware of that um, that issue. Yeah, 
Yeah, I actually got a, a lovely little email from Wolf. I shouldn't call it little. I got a lovely email from Wolfgang um, after <laughs> I posted some of my frustrations, I'll call them, on Twitter. Um, after receiving the Tome of Beasts and seeing uh, Lorelei, the Lorelei, the... Um, abominable I can't say that word abominable beauty um the mirager and uh he he sent me a a nice email talking about how you know he realizes that there there were some there were some times where he he didn't get it right um essentially and that it's his internal fight that he continues to have um and even though it's not apparent he actually won some battles when Mm -hmm. it came to the art in the tome of beasts um but basically keep keep pushing back you know if you see stuff like this keep pushing back because it it helps him um win those battles in the future so i i I appreciated him reaching out yeah absolutely one of the first things i noticed when i when i first got the book and i was just flipping through it real quick just to read headlines and look at the art uh, I, it, it, the preponderance of of sexually depicted women um, stood out to me. So the second thing I did, having flipped all the way through it, was to flip back through it backwards, and I counted the number of of seductively posing women, or, or compared to the number of seductively posing men in the book, and it was um, about a dozen or so women females being being depicted that way and if you squint you could maybe kind of justify one (laughs) yeah and there's even like creatures like like you mentioned with the mirager um that are described as being um men or there was one there's one um early on with that that has like the double-sided head it has the the human head on one side and the wolf head on the back Mm-hmm. Um, and and it specifically describes that as a male creature that seduces women, and it's super charming and super sexy and all of that. But because it has that wolf head on the back, it was depicted from the back. So all you get is a cloak and the wolf head, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> and so it's like, well, that would have like had that have been a female character, I suspect it would have been depicted differently. Yep. And the, you know, the thing is though that the, the issue is not just about a seductively posed person because when women are seductively posed it's often okay it's a total trap uh which is bad for women or it's complete objectification or both mm-hmm. whereas when men are depicted all muscular and you know seductive or whatever it's a power it's it's empowering for right. them it's it's not an objectification thing so even if we were to count you know the sort of okay well how many men don't have shirts on versus how many women don't have shirts on it's not really equal even if the official number is equal and i know in here the official number is not even equal but you know what i'm saying right. it, mm-hmm. it's not an issue of which one of them is depicted seductively more often it's what the implication of that seductive image is for women it's not an empowering image for a man depicted seductively it is often an empowering image yeah right on uh so other any other sort of weaknesses or or areas where of improvement to besides the the portrayal of male characters versus female characters yeah um i have a uh, a few more nitpicks i would say but i i just um in terms of the art in general I noticed 
pretty quickly that there just wasn't really a lot of consistency between the art styles. Um, I It was actually pretty jarring for me. Uh, specifically, like, going through... I'm going to give you two examples. Um, so flipping from the Bear Folk to the... Uh, Bailey, Belly, um, which is pretty early on, it's just super contrasting art styles. Um, Mm. So I I know they probably had some art uh, from previous previous, uh, creatures that they had in other books, which probably played a factor in this, Um, but it definitely stood out to me. I don't know if I'm the only one with that, Um, but it was a little jarring for me. Okay. I... It's really funny because I don't process that. Part of part of it is because I'm looking at a PDF. If I have a, a physical book, I'm more likely to find it jarring. Especially because um, they're sitting on the same page and you can see them right, side by side. Right. Yeah. Um, but the what struck me was just some of some of the pictures are kind of uh, not good. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, like the Shelly coat. Like what the hell? <laughs> you know. I mean. <laughs> You know, because some of these pictures are really awesome, like the Militar, page 288. It's it's not, like, the best thing I've ever seen in my life, but it's a pretty cool-looking picture. Um, I guess I don't have an and, issue with the Shelly coat, but okay. Yeah, well, of course... We're I mean, it's weird-looking, but it's a weird-looking creature. So. thing, right? Like, I just, you know, some, some of them... So, it strikes me more on a... On, as I'm looking at the PDF on a case by case, like I notice the ones that I like um, are done by a couple of the artists, and the ones that I don't like, I think are so. I, I just think so I think it's a style, style thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and and you know, don't get me wrong. I agree with what Jeff said earlier, which was you know the quality of the art overall is really really high. Um, yeah. So you know, well, it, in fairness, you is, can you can run into the same difference in art style in a Watsy book very oh, easily. Absolutely, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, but I I think they probably I I feel like even though they're they're different artists, I mean, in the player's handbook, uh, the the art still looked relatively similar in mm-hmm. style. It yeah. wasn't. I think that comes down to probably art direction with just making okay. sure that there's still some consistency and that's that's what i felt like was a little lacking yeah, yeah. I, yeah I, I think yeah. you're right that some of this is coming from different uh cobalt products from the past since a mm-hmm. lot of these are updated creatures uh so it might be that you know that might be part of the the conflicting art style as well like oh these were from a weird horror thing and these were from a cthulhu thing and these were from a happy-go-lucky child's product or something like that and and that actually (laughs) that actually brings me to another one of my issues go ahead the lemur the the lemur folk that looks like uh the picture was taken right out of that madagascar movie (laughs) (laughs) and did you look at that page 271 it's like (laughs) (laughs) ta-da I, it's funny. I don't have as much of a problem with the uh, with the different art styles, um, but I guess uh, I don't know that my eye for art is that good either. So I'm not yeah, gonna... no, it didn't bother me at all. Although talking about how a lot of this is conversion from previous editions, um, uh, specifically, I think most of it, if not all of it, was was Pathfinder or original. Um, is that I think there are definitely some some artifacts of that conversion. Right, I'm always. Um, uh-huh. A little hesitant and a little critical of of thing of conversion products because there is a tendency to convert 
um, the creature to the new system rather than creating something for the new system, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, I f and I feel like there are some artifacts of that here. Uh, I think there are examples. I, I found one example, for example, in the Fate Eater. Which is a really cool concept and a really cool, cool creature. And one of the, the things that it might end up doing to you is causing you to, quote, losing two on a skill and gaining two in another skill. Um, mm -hmm. Not really mm -hmm. a fifth edition sort of thing. Totally makes sense in third edition and Pathfinder where there are, are discrete skill ranks, right? Right. Um, but not really something that makes sense in fifth edition. Um, I also found there to be a preponderance of... Um, Things like creatures with multi-attacks and lots of multi-attacks um, that do just very little damage. Um, that's like if that's sort of the iconic thing of the creature, that's great. Um, but if it's not, like I'd rather have fewer attacks that do a little more damage because it's faster in my combat, right? Um, mm -hmm, there are yeah. moments where uh, in a third edition stat block you list two powers as being separate, but in, in fifth edition I don't know that you need to, or I, I don't know that you would ever need to, because like one of them triggers off of the other one and does it every single time you use it, so why not just make it one power, right? Right. Uh, and then I also counted... I went. I did. Besides my counting of sexy women, uh, I also counted. <laughs> it, it occurred to me at, by the time I got to about the seas, there's a lot of creatures with innate spellcasting, uh, and I counted them. 145 creatures all have innate spellcasting, and as I was paying attention to them, some of them were like one or two really simple things. Like all the, the Court of the Shadow Fae things have uh, the Misty Step spell or whatever, right? Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and I kind of feel like that's completely unnecessary. One, as a DM, that stuff drives me crazy because now I have to reference multiple books to run one creature. Not even multiple pages. Now I need a player's handbook open and flipping pages between spells in order to do all that stuff. That's insane, and some of them I don't think even add really anything to the creatures and weren't necessary to begin with. If you had just come up with one um, kind of cool and iconic power that was listed there, you wouldn't have needed the innate spellcasting at all, right? So I thought I think, but but that's something you totally did in third edition, and and they continued to do in mm -hmm. Pathfinder. So that's part of that design aesthetic sort of carrying over into this product, which is intended for fifth. So that's some just some areas where I felt like it, it's a conversion, not a fifth edition product, you know. Mm. And I've I've I, ranted uh, and railed. I told you I had some nitpicks, right? <laughs> so that that, <laughs> that that was I think most of them. <laughs> so the innate spellcasting uh, doesn't bother me as much because I do feel like once you know those spells, you know it, it is a pain in the butt to flip between a bunch of different books. I totally, totally agree with mm -hmm. that. But I feel like once you know those spells, it's not like, oh, well, this one has Misty Step, but it works this way, and it's called, you know, uh, Fog Step. And this one also has basically the same ability, but it's called Cloud Step instead. You know what I mean? Like, I do feel like having spells like that, once you get used to them, it gives it some sort of, uh, like, like a common. You can just look down. Misty Step, okay, I know they can teleport 30 feet. Boom. And well, and that's, that's fine if it's going to be an iconic creature in my game, and it's something simple like Misty Step for all, quarter, all the Shadow Fae elves, right? Um, it's another thing if it's going to be a one-off, one like here's just a random encounter I rolled up and now I have to reference you know, five pages in the Monster Manual to look up these different spells when you could have just given me a power um, that, that got around some of the same effect. 
Um, I don't know. There, there are elements of it that feel uh, a little bit lazy and um, feel like you're adding complexity to a monster. Like, if you're going to list five different innate spells, you've effectively added five more powers on top of the three or four powers you've already written in the action section um, that I, I need to keep track of and find other places and figure out what to do and how to do it. Uh, I'm, I'm probably not going to do that if it's a random encounter. So those, those creatures are no longer useful to me in, in small encounters because I'm just not going to look it all up. Fair. So there. Rant over. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I did notice some of that conversion stuff, um, but just personally, that stuff doesn't bother me. I mean, I'm just like, eh, whatever, you know. I, so I, I get I get the rant, I get the complaint, I understand yeah, yeah, what yeah. you're saying. It it just not personally doesn't affect me. I don't. Yeah, yeah, I, and, I, and I said at the beginning, right, that I wanted to start with strengths yeah. because I love no, no, the yeah. book and I totally yeah. feel like I got my money's worth out of it. I just could have gotten oh, yeah. a few more dollars worth out of it if, if some of these things yeah. weren't there. Yeah. Any other sort of uh, weaknesses or areas for improvement we think are in the book? Nope. I think that pretty much covers it for me. Uh, and we have talked for almost an hour on our review, and we still have the interview to get to. So mm. uh, last thoughts before we toss it off to the interview. Last uh, thoughts, James. I would say good book, definitely buy it. That's, you know, that's really what it comes down to is like, I feel like our nitpicks are nitpicks. Um, it's it, and it's available as a PDF, so you can get it for pretty cheap. Uh, 400 monsters, add them to your game, surprise your players, have a great time. Yeah, I mostly feel like the nitpicks are like things to be aware of when you're running creatures from the book, not reasons to not buy the book. Agreed. Yep. So Liz, for me, any, any last thoughts? Yeah, um, overall, I absolutely love this book. Um, if you're looking at this book and comparing it against other books like it um, available and out there, I mean, I feel like you get the most for your money out of this one, and it's usually twice the size um, yeah. as <laughs> all those other books. So definitely, I, I recommend this for any GM uh, that's run in 5th edition. Right on. Sam, last thoughts? Uh I I want to mention one sort of uh, throwback nod to uh, to an old school module. There's a creature called the Treacle in here. That's a little bunny creature, um, mm -hmm. but it kind of lure, lures you in. That is a that is a d almost direct callback to Expedition to the Barrier Peaks, oh, yeah? which has the little little bunny on the stump uh, that lures you in to try to uh, rescue it. Uh, and then it's a, a bad, bad creature. Um, so <laughs> check that out if, if you're if you're sort of a, an old school person. They they do have a lot of things in here that really appeal to the fifth edition style, regardless of the conversion issues that uh, that Jeff mentioned. Um, I I'm extremely impressed with the book. I I did not back it on Kickstarter, uh, and I back a lot of Kickstarters, but I chose not to back it because I thought to myself, well. Do I need a conversion book of Midgard setting monsters? And I decided no. Mm -hmm. And I was wrong. And and I need and this there book. You, go. you need the book. <laughs> so, uh, it's not I, really I it's not really a Midgard bestiary. And uh, you know, those of us that kickstarted it also get the book of layers when that's ready to go out. So there. Right. Although yep. you may have already gotten the physical book of layers, Liz and James. Yeah. Uh, yeah. the, that's another one that they're having issues b because of the maps of to send the PDFs out. 
Because mm-hmm. the maps are, are gigantic and, and beautiful and what have uh, you. I have the PDF of that, they're, too. They're, mm-hmm. They are actually, they are on the store. They're on the Cobalt Press store. Mm-hmm. And so are the Tome of Beasts pawns. So go. if you want little cardboard pawns. All kinds of stuff to get. I'm putting in an order right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, while Sam puts in his order for all of these great Cobalt <laughs> products, I'm going to go ahead and, and toss the segment off to Liz and James, who are sitting here with us now. But now they're going to be t- talking to you from the future as they interview Luther. Wolfgang Bauer and Dan Dillon, two of the people whose names appear on the cover. Wolfgang Bauer, who, who sort of, I don't know, is he the publisher, CEO, whatever, of uh, Cobalt Press? Uh, all of the above. Yeah, all of the above. So, so take it away, you guys. All right, everybody, now Liz Tice and I are here with the one and only Wolfgang Bauer and Dan Dillon. Guys, welcome to the Tome Show. How are you? Hey, doing great. Hey, how's it going, guys? It's glad to be back. Awesome, awesome. It's great to have you here. Uh, Liz and I actually recorded a review for this uh, earlier this week, um, and I have to say uh, it was it was a very positive review. Uh, we definitely recommended uh, people check out the Tome of Beasts and everything. Um, Wolfgang and Dan, we've talked on the roundtable many times about the book, uh, so I think people can, if they want to get it sort of the overall impression, they're going to get that in the review what the book is and you know they can if they've listened to past episodes or they can go back and find them by searching tome of beasts at the tome show.com um you they can hear sort of all about the great monsters that are in this book and you know what exactly all of the content is so i think for this interview liz and i would love to focus on kind of how everything got put together and how decisions are made and and things like that uh and reasoning behind uh, what goes into the book and what monsters are there and that kind of thing. Uh, so uh, if you guys are cool with that, uh, Liz is going to take it away. Yeah, sounds great. Yeah, so first of all, I'd really like to talk to you about how you, you do conversions. So this book had a number of creatures that were converted from other books originally written for different game systems. So how does your design process differ from a book where con- you have conversions like this as compared to a book where you're starting from scratch. Well, uh, I guess I can take that one if you don't mind, Wolfgang. No, I think you did more conversions than I did. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> so um, conversion is an interesting term when you're talking about going from, say, 4th edition or Pathfinder to 5th to edition d and um, I, I find it a little bit of a misnomer because... That's you're fair. still you're still doing basically monster design from the ground up. You just have more of a framework than you might otherwise have with an original monster. Um, uh, you know, I can look at what the previous designer did, and, and I can say, okay, well, at least I, you know, I I can tell what this monster is supposed to do at the table, what kind of what kind of feelings it's supposed to invoke, what flavor it's supposed to bring, what kind of challenge it is. But then you really have to throw away everything that was actually there, and you have to start working within 5th Ed's 
assumptions and and uh, established boundaries, uh, and you can push those boundaries, right? And and we did that a bit with the Tome of Beast monsters, and that was fun to do. Uh, a little risky, but that's what makes it exciting. Um, <laughs> but but you have to get rid of those old assumptions because they'll they'll cause stumbling blocks if you don't. If if that makes sense, um, yeah, because a lot of things just work differently. And a lot of the core assumptions of various systems and monster t- t- statistics, um, they, they just don't match up one-to-one. So when you convert, you're really taking the themes and then you have to polish away all the old mechanics and put in the new stuff to preserve the theme. That's great. I think uh, one thing that many people probably don't understand is, you know, when they look at a a book like Tome of Beasts with 400 monsters, you know, I think there's probably a a tendency to look at some of them and go, oh, but those are conversions. Those don't count. So I think it's helpful to know, you know, there's so much design work that still goes into it. um, And it's not just, you know, taking it, shifting a little bit, and then uh, you're done. So thank right. you for, <laughs> for the, the hours a little bit I more put context. into conversions beg to differ on whether it counts <laughs> or not. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And, and honestly, there's a there's a flip side to this, right? Which is we've got a bunch of Midgard players who've been playing it in Fantasy Age or Pathfinder or Fourth Edition or heck 3.5, right? Whatever, Thirteenth Age. Um, and they're thrilled to have the conversion. <laughs> it means they don't well, have I'm, to do it themselves. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, and some of the monsters we picked were pretty much for that reason. It's like, well, these are really integral to the Midgard setting. They get a little Midgard sidebar. It's not a lot of the book, um, but a few key touchstones for the setting are in there. Um, and we really wanted them there. So, well, And it's important to note that even with those Midgard staples, and, you know, they have their little sidebar, but they're still, you know, they, they still work perfectly in any other setting as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. We yeah. stripped out a lot of the, hey, we don't want to make this into a Midgard-only monster, right? It should be useful anywhere. And yeah. and I, I think you did a great job of doing that. I, I felt like I got that impression when I was reading through the book. Good. So it seems like Cobalt Press is doing a lot of uh, focusing on products for 5th edition D&D. Uh, is this pivot sort of a long-term change? Uh, should fans expect to see anything more from Cobalt for Pathfinder or Starfinder in the future? Uh, I'll take that one. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, the Starfinder part of the question is easy. Cobalt Press has long had a sort of, I don't know, cornerstone plank principle that we are a fantasy company and we don't do science fiction um and starfinder made me reevaluate that and say is it time <laughs> to change my mind uh cobalt's because in it, space. yeah come on cobalt's in space could be a lot of fun uh but eventually i decided you know we're small enough that it's better for us to stay super focused on fantasy mm-hmm. um we already try to cover 5th uh, edition and some Pathfinder and some of the design guides. And that's like three areas. That's plenty. Um, so Starfinder's out. We're, we're not going to go there. And I know plenty of other companies will. Um, so there will be support. Um, the other half of that, uh, as far as Pathfinder support more generally, uh, yeah, Cobalt Press has, you know, made no about the fact that we've very long been one of the earliest and and most prolific 
Pathfinder third-party publishers, and people are already asking me, so when do I get the Pathfinder version of Tome of Beasts? <laughs> right? <laughs> like, uh, we're tired. We're, we're, it's not going to happen overnight. It's just as much work. Um, but so that project is not in the offing, right? It it might happen, but it's not it's not next in the queue. We have uh, we have a Kickstarter though for Pathfinder coming up this fall, uh, and we have a couple of adventures to support the Southlands, and we continue to run um, our convention track uh, of adventures and and support for Pathfinder. It's gonna probably feel like less Pathfinder support to to players because we are doing a lot of fifth edition. Um, but at the same time, you, you sort of look at the steady stream of high quality stuff coming out from, you know, legendary games or rogue genius or others. Uh, I don't think there's any lack of, of new releases, third party support for Pathfinder. The ones from Cobalt will just be um, a few times a year instead of every month. Well, I mean, that makes sense. You're supporting an additional game system, but it's not like Cobalt Press suddenly doubled in size. So right. It's like, <laughs> they're separate, they're almost entirely separate groups of designers and editors, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because people do specialize in a system, and it's like, okay, we work with some Paizo staff on our Pathfinder stuff. Um, there are not people, by and large, who work on 5th edition. Um, and, and vice versa, right? We work with some freelancers who 5th edition is their, their bread and butter. Um, and and they, don't, you know, they don't see any need to go do a, a second system. They specialize. Well, that's great news for Pathfinder fans that are looking out for uh, more stuff from Cobalt Press. So I'm glad. I, I'm um, sure that... The, those people, uh, those players will be excited to hear that news. Mm -hmm. oh. And I mean, there could be, I'm just, I'm just throwing this out there. I know you've thrown away <laughs> the idea of Starfinder Wolfgang, but like, what if there was an, I don't know, Southlandish desert planet, you know, a, a, a Tatooine <laughs> someone could design, say. Uh, you know, I'll just I'll just leave that thought there for you to. All right. <laughs> well, you know, if you're gonna get science fiction in my peanut butter, I think you have to uh, uh, land a spaceship somewhere in a high set of mountains with robot guards and lasers, and uh, if you do that, <laughs> and veggie pygmies, then then you're fine. <laughs> Flail snails. Flail snails. Bring those. That's science fictional, right? Come on, genetic engineering. Go for it. Oh goodness. Well, uh, you know, I think it was interesting to for me as a, a fifth edition player. I was eagerly waiting for what was Cobalt Press going to do for fifth edition, and I personally was very excited when I saw the Tome of Beasts Kickstarter. But I was a little curious as to the decision making uh, behind going Tome of Beasts first. So uh -huh. why did Cobalt Press decide to make Tome of Beasts first before doing something else for Five E, like the Deep Magic con uh, conversions that you're doing now? Wow, great question. Um, Thank you. I, th <laughs> I think the short answer to that is I'm a monster-holic, um, and monsters are uh, delight me. Um, and maybe Deep Magic still felt like it was a little too close, because after doing a book that size, you sort of burn out on the topic, even if it's for another system. Um, and frankly... We've done little monster books over and over, but we've never done a big hardcover. Um, and I'm just a huge... I mean, 
<laughs> I want those for my table, right? I see the utility of it. Um, that said, we're already well underway uh, doing 5th edition Deep Magic now. We're up to the fourth installment of that. Uh, we're doing it chapter by chapter, and we'll compile it sometime next year. So it wasn't an easy call to say which route to go. Um, but it seemed like Monsters was just a smarter bet. And and at some level, I get to say as publisher, hey, I need more Monsters at my table. Let's do the Monster book. <laughs> so you, you have control of the design schedule, so that helps I, out. I do, right? <laughs> and, and sometimes, especially for a small company, but I suspect this is true of big companies too, the... The principle is, well, someone's putting stuff on the schedule, and if they have a bias to do, say, Ravenloft before Dark Sun, then it's Ravenloft before Dark Sun, right? Yeah. Um, sometimes those decisions are, are totally vetted and analytical, and sometimes they're more personal when it's a toss-up. Sure. And from my part on the Tome of Beasts, uh, I don't know how much of this actually factored into it, but something that I saw, one of the first things that I noticed when I was approached about uh, working on this project, was the very first thing that was said was, we've been writing monsters for years, so we have a ton of monsters just sitting around. Wouldn't it be cool to drag all those into 5th edition and, and make a giant book out of them? So I, I think maybe there was a lot of just kind of potential energy behind monsters because of how many Cobalt had done. And, and that was just sort of waiting to be a thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, making that first spreadsheet was <laughs> like, oh, man, it's going to be a big book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on those lines, so uh, how many sort of monsters uh, are conversions versus like, you know what? We've always wanted to do this monster and Tome of Beasts is a great excuse for us to make it. Or I cool. would love Fifth Edition is a great place for this monster that I just dreamt up, that kind of thing. Um, oh, gosh, do you have numbers on that? Conversions I don't versus have a original? solid number of that. I think it's about a 50-50 split. Wow. It's pretty close. Um, I think for my part of the book, I, I think the part I worked on, it trended more toward original design with a oh, couple yeah. conversions. Uh, mine mine was, was a lot of heavy original design and usually on the, the biggins. Right, but Chris Harris, for instance, did a ton of conversions. Yeah. Uh, Rodrigo did a lot of conversions of Southlands monsters. Uh, I want to say it's at least 50% things that we've published in some form before, though obviously, yeah, we sort of started fresh um, here. But in addition to sort of things that we thought were a good idea, I want to call out that we did 20 monsters by backers, right? Yes. So those 20, uh, most of the stuff that Dan wrote, all the stretch goals I wrote, Stuff that Greg Marks wrote, um, those were all original to start. And the backer monsters in particular, you know, we didn't know what we'd get. And we only took the top 20 out of 100 plus submissions. And they all went through heavy development. So they're awesome, but the, a lot of them are out of left field, right? They're mm -hmm. they're not like, oh, I've seen this before. Everybody brought their, their A game for originality on those in particular. Um and also a lot of our high-level stuff went through the same sort of thing, where it's like, well, need some higher-level monsters, and those tend to be quirky and original, too. Mm -hmm. And did the... So it sounds like maybe the success of the Kickstarter helped get a lot of original monsters in there, because the, you hit so many stretch goals. 
Yeah, I mean, all the stretch goals were new stuff, and it must be a hundred monsters came out of stretch goals, at least, um, and sometimes twelve and six at a time. Like the villain codex, um, at the back is like a dozen um, bosses and humanoids that we uh, we put together. Um, yeah, I, it's it's tough to call them. I mean, we keep saying conversions versus original, but honestly, I look at the work that Chris <laughs> did, and it's like, well, it's the same name, but, um, you know, it plays differently, and it has half as much text as a Pathfinder stat block, and it's like, this is a 5th edition monster. So, mm. um, it, it was certainly as much work as as just having done it from scratch. Um, right, you basically had yep. a name, right? Yeah, um, and we had some flavor text. And we had a good <laughs> art order, sure, right? Sure. Like, here's the black and white art we did six years ago. We can use that as a reference. Oh, that actually segues perfectly into the next question, um, which is, <laughs> so So, in looking through the, the sort of art style of the book, um, it looks like, uh, you know, this is a maybe a, a conglomeration of some older assets plus a lot of new assets. Um, can we talk about uh, how sort of the art was put together uh, and, and why you went the route that you went with the art? Sure, although if we had art director Mark, Mark Riddle here, that would be a little easier. <laughs> gotcha. um, but I can, I can speak for him some. Sure, let me add it. Um, how was it put together? Well, <laughs> uh, part of it was, yeah, we did, uh, for instance, the Southlands monsters. We had new art just off that project, won the, the gold any for best setting for Southlands. We said, these are some great monsters, a lot of tomb monsters, desert, jungle, um, Arabian nights and African rooted monsters. And you know, why not? We've got great art for these. That was a big foundation of our, our conversion. And Rodrigo Garcia Carmona um, already knew what the final art was going to look like when he was writing those. Um, but for the most part, yeah, we were commissioning a ton of new art. And the thought there was in almost all the conversions, we had black and white art to go with um yeah with with the exception of the southlands pieces so we were buying new art anyway we might as well go to our favorite artists that are our regulars now that are doing their best work for us um and that we can afford to pay from the kickstarter for huge swaths of art um so in every sense it felt like a big upgrade uh and it's my belief that Monster art serves at least a couple of purposes, so it needs to be strong. And the work that went into it kind of reflects that. Um, I mean, the first purpose is, hey, if the monster art doesn't look good when you're flipping through it at the local game store, you might be less inclined to purchase it. So there's a commercial purpose. But beyond that, there's a inspiring the game master purpose, right? Um, I find I do this myself all the time. I'm trying to come up with what is exciting for this week. What am I going to run? I pull a monster book off the shelf and I flip through it until something hits me. Um, and it's not like the name or the stat block. It's, oh, yeah, that looks cool. I wonder if I can make that work. 
That's cool. What's uh, it do? Yeah, what's it do? When <laughs> is it the right challenge rating? Eh, close enough. It'll be a tough fight. Um, <laughs> or alternately, gosh, those are wimpy. I'm going to need a lot of them. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I use them as idea springboards, and I wanted the art to to make people say, huh, I really want to shoehorn this in. And we've heard this um, in feedback from backers and, and people who've been using it is, yeah, this stuff is great. I want to use it on tokens on my virtual tabletop. I want to use uh, stand-up pawns, show it to my players, and, and have them go, wait a minute, what's that? Um, so that second purpose is just inspirational. And the third purpose which is really the least of them is so, you know, does it provide any helpful information about what it looks like, what it like wears, modes of dress, culture, weaponry? Um, those are important details, but I would argue they're less important than the inspirational part or even the commercial part. Well, I think I can speak for myself and I mean, if you listen to the other part of this podcast, you'll hear it as well, um, <laughs> that it was it was definitely inspirational for me as I was flipping through the mm -hmm. book. Um, I got a lot of great creative nuggets um, from flipping through the Tome of Beasts, uh, more so than I think a, a bunch of other books that are on my bookshelf. So I very much appreciate that from, uh, from an art standpoint. Um, but I have to ask this question, Wolfgang. Sure. Nate yeah, naked ladies who draw men to their deaths. What's up? Yeah, with that? <laughs> there's at least like two or three of them, um, and it's a thing. Um, <laughs> it, I mean, yeah, I can is, talk about is. there's there's two parts to that question, right? One is, yeah. well, they're naked ladies, and the other part is it's this trope about drawing men to their deaths. Yeah, um, <laughs> and you know we often get them together, um, but but I'm going to address them separately. So. I think about two pieces of the art in the whole book are mm, more naked than I want. <laughs> um, and you know, this would be this would be where I'd say, "Hey, Mark, tell me about that." Mm -hmm. um, but speaking in his place, I'd say, "You know, we've got a trope of the." seducer or seductress and the text in these cases it's like okay it seems to say it's men and women can fill this role um but we're going to choose to illustrate the woman uh, i wish they were a little less naked in those two pictures yeah. um at the same time i'm really proud of the fact that we've got a lot of female monsters that are I don't know, uh, wearing reasonable armor, garments, uh, what have you, right? It's like yeah, yeah. the ghost knight, the enchantress. Valkyrie. The Valkyrie, the shadow fey huntress. I mean, hunter. Oh, she's one of my favorites. Yeah. I really? Like her. Yeah. She's the one I'm like, oh, those clothes are so practical and brown. Couldn't we have gone a little Robin Hood? Well, <laughs> you know, I, I like it because it's, it's actually, you know, something I can imagine – that that person wearing so it's yes. it, that that practical side of it actually is what i, I think i love about side. it 
I just took, I guess I'm complaining about the color palette because I'm such Fair a Robin Hood fan. I want that person <laughs> to be wearing more green or something. Um, yeah, but, but yeah, no, in the shadow realm. <laughs> for her function, right? She's, she's a hunter. Um, mm-hmm. So for the most part, it's like, okay, there's a couple of exceptions where I don't think we nailed it um, or we went too far. Um, but at the same time, I'm like, well, some of the mythology is pretty straight up about, well, this is a seductress who lures people to their death. And that trope, um, as a monster type, uh, is one that exists for reasons, um, largely having to do with, well, the Rusalka and the Lorelei are well-established in myth and legend as, eh, we like to lure people to their deaths. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think probably we could have done with one less, but <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's hard, especially when you're trying to fill certain niches, um, or you sort of have the spreadsheet and it says, well, this is CR5 and this is CR8 and I need them both, right? Sure. Right. Um, Do you- do you ever no. think about like uh, you know for some of them where it does say it could be a man or a woman maybe illustrating a man or do you ever think about because it is uh, all fantastical and and fantasy and you can say whatever you want do you ever think about like tweaking the lore so you could uh, put a man or a woman in there you know I as think, opposed to I just mean, women yeah the the lore in most cases unless the the role is really heavily geared toward women I think in most of those luring monsters, it's, eh, you see, male and female versions of this monster, right? Um, at least in the text. Uh, at least as far as naked man goes, though, I mean, we're fairly straightforward about the fact that the Lord of the Hunt is kind of eye candy-ish and male, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and the only really completely naked monster in the book... Other than the ones with fur, but the only naked humanoid that springs to mind for me right now is the Algorith, who's male but very mm, robotic and data-like. <laughs> and right. So, yeah, we tried to get some balance there, and I just don't think we hit it as neatly as as I would have liked in retrospect. It's like, man, we would have flipped like two more monsters, and I'd feel good about it. Well, I, I appreciate sort of having this this context to it because I think it sort of uh, answered a lot of the questions that we brought up when we were talking through um, how how those decisions get made and um, you know what 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 the options are when when choosing art for stuff like this. So I appreciate a little bit more information on that. And for anyone else that uh, had the same question, I'm sure this will will help them understand how those decisions get made and and sort of where you're coming from from that from it's that. It's a uh, wide range question. of art. Yeah, and yeah. I mean Dan sort of alluded to the fact it's fantasy art, so mm-hmm. some of it is. I don't know, you can call it pandering to the audience or you can call it, you know, playing into um, into traditional roles. But I think we do as much with um, with figures like the Ghost Knight, who's sort of an ass-kicking uh, female <laughs> character from the villain codex, yes. <laughs> uh, as we do with sort of the trope that we've been talking about here. Um, so we try to present a variety, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. there are tons of, uh, of kick-ass. Uh-huh ladies in here yes uh, 
which is and awesome. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> sure. And, and tons of <laughs> no, kick-ass. Thank you. It's a great uh, question. You know, uh, gender-neutral constructs and uh, all kinds of other cool stuff. Well, um, that's why we do clockwork creatures, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to tell the art director. Is it a female figure, male figure, <laughs> sort of somewhere in the middle? Right. Well, well, you joke with that. You joke with that, Wolfgang. But I've seen robots, you know, drawn specifically to look female, just to, I guess, yeah. pander to that audience. And I know, and that is like <laughs> way too ridiculous for me. It's like, I okay, know. guys. I know it's like a science fiction thing that your book cover must be a robot with boobs, but come on. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. They said on the D&D podcast that they had a, when they were doing fifth edition, there was a long argument about whether or not dragonborn women should have chests. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think, uh, I think that that debate happens everywhere. Uh, It it does. And I think the debate has shifted in interesting ways and better ways as we have more women in the hobby and better representation um throughout so we yes, try to indeed. try to do that so this is a question our illustrious editor sam dylan really wanted me to ask you guys this question and it's a great question yeah it is it's a good one it is a good one so i want to give credit where credit is due um so it's a two-parter so the first part is for both of you is there any monster that didn't make it into the Tome of Beasts that you wish had, that maybe you thought of later, or you would just like, you know, it's just gonna, it's gonna break the binding on this thing if we put one more page in, you know, uh, what, whatever it was. Um, is there a monster that got left behind for you guys? Mm, for my part, the only things I had cut, like there were a couple different versions of the Ramag that I made that highlighted different points of their culture in their their city of doors and unstable magical flows. Um, but I understand why those were cut because it was a little too much Southland specific culture and setting. Um, that coupled with the Jagundus page count, something had to go. So <laughs> if it, if it was going to be something, uh, sorry guys, it had to be you. Um, that, that's about the only thing I can say from my side o- over what was cut. I think everything else I wrote made it in, fortunately. Yeah, I we did cut some things. I, I don't think there were a lot of missed opportunities. I wish we had done X, because in a book this large, you tend to hit mm-hmm. all of the high notes, plus a bunch of wildly, weirdly original stuff. Um, I mean, I think back on like things that got cut. There was a dog type monster and it's like no we've got several of those we don't need another hound there was a dinosaur it's like oh this is the most boring dinosaur ever (laughs) it it had a really kind of dull slam attack and it's like well the painting's nice but that's right that's the best part of this monster Mm um so eh. um there were a quite a few Southland specific monsters that got cut just because we didn't want to overburden the desert jungle tropical side. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So most of the cuts were for good reason and of things that was quite weak material. There was a totem golem that I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, I never warmed to it. The art was terrible. I, I like it. Feels like playing Hearthstone. No, I, I don't want it. Um, <laughs> That's quite the description. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so maybe we'll come back to some of those concepts and revisit them and do a better job, uh, either art or text or something. But by and large, if they got cut, they got cut for cause. Mm-hmm. Um, and wow, missed opportunities. 
<laughs> I guess we could have done more with planar monsters, but with so many fiends and, I don't know, almost a dozen celestials, I think. We had a lot in there. Yeah, Yeah, we had a fair bit. I love planar stuff just because of Planescape, right? I could do that oh, stuff yeah. all day. Yeah. But <laughs> I, I think we, we got it about right, because if you go too far with it, then it's like, uh... I'm never going to use this stuff. It's all planar, right? Right. Yeah. yeah you can so, only use so much planar stuff in one game. <laughs> right. And they were all written to be like, okay, easy to bring to the material plane, part of the living world, heralds who travel there, um, you know, trying to make it easy to insert into any campaign. But yeah, I don't. Uh, as far as I, oh, maybe one more dragon. We should have done another dragon. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a specific dragon in mind, or just you know? Yeah, actually, a dragon. Oh, there's okay. one specific dragon that I I kicked myself later. Um, Interesting. Which is the Wastelands dragon from Midgard, which oh. I don't think is in print anywhere. They're awesome. They're the dragons who go into the magic dead zone and somehow survive, and they're all hanging, <laughs> hanging out with dust goblins and old gods. And... Yeah, no, they're like the Cthuloid uh, fading. Not as heavily magical, uh, shredded wings, acid breath. Uh, they prey on the pilgrims who travel to the seat of Mavros deep in the wasted west. Um, oh, cool. So, yeah, they're awesome. Uh, why did I not get them in this book? I know, because I didn't <laughs> think it's the later. I can throw one of those missed opportunities out there actually and this is something that someone mentioned on social media because there is this gorgeous picture that shows up on the awesome Cobalt Press t-shirts that showcase oh, the Gen Con yeah. plus the, uh, just the first page of the actual Tome of Beasts there's this little goblin shaman or sorry, mm-hmm. Cobalt shaman wizard fellow uh, and it's a really compelling piece of art by Brian Syme. Uh, and, and someone asked me, hey, Dan, you know, you said you did the kobolds. Do you have this guy on the cutting room floor? Maybe we could see him somewhere because I want to use this. And, and and I thought about it. I'm like, no, I don't I don't think any of the kobolds got cut. And I'm like, that, no. that would make a really cool little yeah. dude. So, and that's one of those questions where the art was commissioned super late for that guy. Yeah. Gotcha. Like after we had commissioned all the cobalt design work and it came in and it was, oh, wow, Brian really did. Well, this is our title page. No doubt there. Right. Um, I think originally he was maybe going to be on the back cover or something as an ornament. Um, but yeah. Wow. Hmm. Uh, he, he, he deserves that page. <laughs> he does. He really does. So actually, that's that's great. Uh because the second part of this question is so thinking about the the wasteland dragon and thinking about this uh, cool little kobold we got in the cover, um, the second part of Sam's question is what creature would you cut to bring that uh. creature in? Don't say corpse mound. Okay. No, no, no. <laughs> oh, no, no. Yeah, yeah, you know, that corpse mound is a pretty complicated creature. It requires a lot of table time and bookkeeping. (laughs) No, it's fine. Uh, I think going back to an earlier part of our conversation, I would probably cut Drowned Maiden, Lorelei. I don't know. One of the water sylphs. We got too many. Yeah, yeah, one of the the water seductresses. (laughs) Fair answer. It's easy to lose perspective when your spreadsheet's that big. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So, And there are a ton of really great monsters in here. And I would guess, based on how 
you were answering the first half of that question, it seems like you're pretty confident in a lot of the decisions you made, and you don't feel like you left a lot behind, which is probably good for a, you know, 400-creature book. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) The book isn't perfect. Anything, you know, it's like, ah, you can always second-guess yourself. It's part of the, like, beat yourself up as a creative or a game designer or editors always room to guess and say ah oh, man i shoulda coulda woulda but honestly this book left me with a <laughs> a real feeling of wow i think we really nailed this i, I see the great stuff that came in i read the playtest reports and now the reviews have been uh, uh pretty much you know yeah i can use this Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, they, I, I, they've been pretty glowing, actually. I, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have to admit, Wolfgang, when I heard there were going to be 400 monsters or over 400 monsters, I was expecting fluff, you know, like sort of, uh, you know, some good solid monsters. But, you know, how can they have, you know, over 400 solid monsters <laughs> um, that it's I could hard see? to believe. But, you it, know, Paizo is possible. like on bestiary number five or six. Right. And those right. are pretty- 300 monsters each, so... Right, I should have never doubted Cobalt Prince <laughs> is what, what it comes down to. <laughs> well, I think it comes down to a lot of these monsters sort of work at the table, and we've had time to see whether the the, the specific abilities and, like, creep factor and general nastiness is up to par, uh, because they have been played in, in some of them in multiple systems, uh, and we knew we were going the right direction with the higher CR, right? The whole thing skews uh, to a higher challenge rating than Thank the original. Thank goodness. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and and the, I was a little scared because it's like, well, if a lot of people are just playing like levels 1 to 10, they're not going to get a lot out of that. But anybody who's playing at level 10, 11, 12, 20 um, is going to find this book a huge relief. And Mike Shea, who blogs his Sly Flourish was just wrapping up his uh, campaign through the hells when we asked him to play test some stuff. And he said, yeah, give me every devil you've got. Give me all the fiends. Give me you know, anything with a CR of 10 or better. And I said, sure, Mike. And we, got, we got something that fits that. Yeah, we got a bunch of that. Try it out. I don't think you'll get to them all. Um, and, and it fills a real void um, that I'm sure is deliberate. The, the game, you know, starts at level one and you reach level five before you reach 15. So there's, there's more value in the, uh, the low CR monsters to start with, but the longer your campaign runs, uh, the more need there is for, well, the stuff that Dan designed, all the big bads. Yeah. I got to do a bunch of the heavy hitters and that was, that was a treat. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm running two games right now. Um, one where the players are level 13 and one where they're level 18. Uh, huh? so I desperately needed this book cause it was like, Oh, another Piffiend. Oh, good. Yeah. Another dragon. Like this provides me with so many other things that I can, uh, I can throw at them and aberrations are kind of the big bad in my game. Um, oh. and, uh, and they cap out around level 13 in the monster manual. So this is uh, thank you for this. Thank you for the Mordant snare. <laughs> I wasn't sure how much play that would get, and apparently quite a bit. <laughs> it's going to be all right. <laughs> that, was a, that was a favorite um, during our review, the Mordant snare. The, the, oh the my art goodness. is terrifyingly disgusting. <laughs> there, was just, there was a lot of sweating over the text because some of the abilities are long and making like 
fitting it on a page. Let's just say it was not <laughs> it was not super intuitive that we would get that thing on one page. Mark Radel had his work cut out for him in the layout department, and he uh, he performed admirably. I don't know how he did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. I mean, the the layout really is uh, is beautiful as well. So, um, uh, and I think that uh, may bring us to the next question. Is that right? Liz? Yeah, I was going to say that segues perfectly. So, speaking of text layout art. What is the design and development process for a book like Tome of Beasts? How how does it go from an idea, a concept in Wolfgang's mind, to a book on my shelf? Ooh. Right? Uh, once over lightly. Okay, so here's two years' work compressed into a minute. Um, <laughs> honestly, this started about, yeah, 10 or 11 months before the Kickstarter. Um, I said I'm, you know playing fifth edition i want to play midgard monsters i did some off the cuff conversions i say you know you could probably do more than off the cuff let's put this on the schedule as you know big monster book one uh it didn't have a name it was what did i call it big book of monsters something silly um that i was sure to change before it shipped uh and Basically, we do this with all our Kickstarters. We start design long before we ask anybody for money uh, to support it. And we pick, I don't know, a dozen or 20 monsters uh, with good art and say, hey, we're going to show some samples. Um, And so we hammered on like the first dozen. And then we start design on the next round of 50 or 100 um, well in advance. So that stuff is underway. When the Kickstarter actually hits, we've got, I don't know, 100 pieces of art in hand and 100 monsters in the can. Um, The Kickstarter lets me gauge, how big is this book really? Um, Because the art budget for a bestiary is what makes it really hard for small publishers to do one, right? There's art on every page. Um... Well, the Kickstarter was in November, uh, yeah, last year, and it went huge, our biggest ever by number of backers or by dollar amount or by general enthusiasm. Um, And it meant, hey, this thing can be huge. And at that point, I said, all right, I need Dan and I need uh, Steve Winter to help on development. I need a bunch of people. to come in and that's when all the stretch goals basically got commissioned so we go from design to playtest to development although in the case of the monster book there's a snag in the process that, that <laughs> we had monsters coming in from backers and we had late stretch goals that weren't designed yet and some of those went into development first, then went out to playtest, then came back to development. Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> That's never the way you want to go, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but there wasn't a lot of choice about it because we, we had so many chunks of manuscript moving around. And we basically split the whole book into like four milestone stages um, just by letter. Um, or maybe Southlands had its own chunk, as I recall. Um, and, and so big 
sections of manuscript are moving around through playtest, through development, through editing, and into layout. Um, the whole thing is a giant tracking nightmare <laughs> because there are so many pieces. I mean, without the playtest coordinator, Ben McFarland, and the several hundred playtesters he had working on this, um, I, I wouldn't have gotten anything done, right? Like, his role on the book was keep playtest reports coming in, keep new text flowing out, make sure that we're tracking everything, try and make sure people put their names on their reports so we can credit them later, all those sorts of things. Um, I don't know if a lot of companies treat playtest as a separate phase of the production cycle, but for crunch-intensive books like this, we try very hard to say that's its own phase, our monsters go through it, right? Um, Thank you so much for that, by the way. <laughs> sure. I don't think I can guarantee that every single monster in the book got a playtest, but every single monster we had on hand got sent out. And in some cases, a group didn't have time to write up a report or, or play through it. And in some cases, it's like, all right, Mechuiti is like challenge 27. And some of the other boards. <laughs> you know, mid-twenties on challenge. I don't have a party ready to deal with this. That's what the playtester says. That's fair, right? Um, and even if I had the party, my players aren't ready to play 20th level PCs. Um, <laughs> so at that level, it's it's a little more guesswork than you'd like. But, um, but yeah, and then into layout. And the layout process... It's fairly collaborative between design and edit. Uh, there's a proofreading stage. Um, yeah, that was where we had to make cuts because we were still like three monsters over at the end. Um, and it's like, well, we don't really need this one and that's a duplicate and the art's terrible and made those decisions. So down to the last minute, the last wire, right? We're still correcting and improving and tweaking the book. And I can remember making some lore changes um, and text changes right up until press time, which felt really late to me. <laughs> um, but monsters that came in late and came out of playtest late and came out of development late, it's like, well, they come to editing at the very last minute. And here you go, Mark. I hope you have the art ready, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> It, it feels sort of like uh, creating a book like this is um, is a relay race more than a sprint or a marathon because you're handing it off, right? You have to trust that the people at the very front of it, the leading, bleeding edge of design, are doing interesting, wonderful things with uh, the mechanics and the attacks and the flavor. And you have to trust that the playtesters are giving you pretty good review um, the developers are watching out for the whole system and adherence to 5th edition. Uh, the editor's trying to catch as many uh, of the errors and logic gaps and missing bits of information as possible. Um, and then your layout stage is all about, well, the text better be perfect because it's going on the page, right? Um, and and sort of marrying it to art brings a whole new perspective. I think a relay is a great analogy for that because, you know, I can't, uh, obviously I can't speak from the top view of things because, you know, I only carried the baton for, for a short time. 
So, you know, for my part, it's just like I get an email with a list of monster names and maybe there's a book reference if it's a conversion. And if not, maybe there's a sentence or two about what it is and what it should do. And the rest is on me. Go, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Dan, uh, void dragons are creatures of the outer darkness. Dragons corrupted by the elder gods. Go. Uh, okay <laughs> that I can do there were a couple of those like hey do you, this demon lord does he have a treatment anywhere like nope it's just something I thought up it's kind of a bird shadow guy he likes harpies figure something out <laughs> okay. darkness in the night go <laughs> Uh, well, I think those constraints make it fun on the design side and and you know people bring bring more creativity if there's a little bit of a constraint on it I think it's yeah, got to be level 15. Yeah, ha- having an outline is nice, and then being able to just kind of color however I want within the lines is is good. Yeah, uh, and there me. were certain monsters that were assigned mostly because they fit a gap, or it's like we don't have an aberration at whatever, CR 15. Yeah. Give us one. Um, a lot of things from Folklore, too. Those were fun. Here's this guy from Folklore that I've maybe heard of, right? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) And when the folklore is contradictory, you get to pick the best parts. (laughs) Or when the folklore is a little racy and probably not fit to go into a game book. (laughs) (laughs) Look at you, Pombero. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sanitize that a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, I think it turned out fine. And those who want to look up the, the, I don't know, 18 plus lore can go look. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, so along the, the lines of designing and, and things like that, and I know we're tight, um, but uh, there are a lot of creatures in this book that go beyond, uh, I think Wolfgang, you were saying like, oh, we had a dinosaur, but it just had a slam attack, so we didn't want to, you know, we, we would rather have a more interesting creature in there. Um, the mechanics of a lot of these monsters are very interesting, and it looks like there was a concerted effort to go beyond like the normal, like, well, it's got a claw and a bite, and uh, it's resistant to fire, and there you go, it's a, it's a fire cat, boom, next, you know. Um, and can you talk a little bit about like, uh, from a design perspective, what are the challenges when you're sitting there trying to? Uh, think up maybe often for some of the whole cloth new creatures that you know you just think are cool um, how do you get those abilities that are just as interesting as the lore of the creature is uh, I wish there were an easy answer for this uh, yeah. I think part of it is you you have someone like Dan or Chris Harris or you know Rodrigo and Greg Marks uh, as your designers uh, because they're full of great ideas. But the other half of that equation, from my perspective, is you have someone like Steve Winner um, to take, you know, oh, that's a good idea, but it doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> and second, sort of, you know, do development on it and say, this is off the power chart or underpowered and and sort of reimagine some of those things. Um, I think the best monsters are... They're collaborations between two or three people, right? It's the artist, the designer, the developer, and maybe the playtesters. I don't know, Dan, where do you get the coolest powers from? 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> this you know, is one of those where do you get your ideas questions. That yeah, I... <laughs> and I've answered this a couple times, even on the Tome Show, so I'm going to come back to it because it's one of my favorites. Um, I'm very visual, <laughs> visual visualization and cinematic. I love movies. I love cool splash images, uh, if you get what I'm saying. So, uh, like, uh, when I hear a monster concept, I'll try and think of what is awesome about what this monster does. And uh, a, a particular... Uh, excellent capture of that is the Ayala, the kind of the the steel swans uh, in in the Tome of Beasts. The art just captures that so perfectly because it's a swan made of like black metal breathing fire everywhere and the way the flames are reflecting off of the metal bird. It's just, it's perfect. It's perfect. The artist nailed it. And and when you tell me metal swan that breathes fire, that kind of writes itself but and and you hit it when you were talking about Steve Winter and the development. It's a trick to have that cool idea and then translate it to mechanics that work. So when you have just this awesome image of what a monster can do, that's the starting point for me. That's the seed that's going to grow into something cool. Uh, and then the trick is making it easy to use, but also interesting. Uh, and sometimes you know you have to. That that's a slider you have to play with. Uh, depending on what your concept is, and and it's tricky to hit the right balance sometimes. Right, that's where uh, playtest often comes in because yes. people will come back and say, you know, this is really cool, but my players destroyed it at range and it never stood a chance. Or this was really great, but my players felt it was super frustrating because it does X really well and they felt they had no counter. And then it's like, oh, hmm. Or you know, Can I we... threw it. I threw it at them in this situation, and when you couple this monster's ability with this condition, it's devastating. And this is not CR two. What have you done? You know, <laughs> right, right. Um, and it's, I don't know. Different designers sort of aim high or aim low, right? Like some designers, you just know it's going to come in tougher than whatever CR they've assigned to it. Sorry about um, that. And and others are like just a little timid, and it's like. This is not a big challenge. Um, so figuring out what that balance is, um, yeah, that's what that what brings it in right over the plate where you want it. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, the Allah, by the way, belongs on a heavy metal T-shirt. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> uh, Liz, do you have any other questions for these guys? Nope, that about covers it. All right. I think that was a, a good amount of information. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so thank was. you for that. <laughs> yeah, thank you, and thank you for uh, for answering some of the uh, the harder questions and stuff too. Uh, so I think it was really, really great. We always love having both of you here on the Tome Show, uh, and you are welcome back anytime. In the meantime, uh, where can people go to find out more about you and the wonderful things that you are doing? Uh, Dan, let's start with you. Sure. Um, well, I'm on Twitter. I'm at Dan underscore Dylan underscore one. Super creative, I know. Uh, I'm also on Facebook at Daniel.p.dylan. And uh, I moderate the Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition Facebook group started by Michael Long of Tribality on Facebook. Uh, and we just hit over 20,000 members. So it's a, it's a lively community, a lot of D&D discussion. If you're interested or need help or anything, come on in. We'd love to chat. Awesome, awesome, and a thankless moderating job, if there ever was one. Uh, and uh, and Wolfgang Bauer, uh, where can people find you? 
Uh, well, coboldpress.com is the blog we keep with announcements and freebies and contests and all those wonderful things. Uh, you can find me personally on Twitter at Monkey King. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. Uh, I don't even know what the address is, but uh, how many Wolfgang Bowers are there online? Probably some dentists in Germany, <laughs> I think. Um, <laughs> uh, and you can also find my stuff and things I think are cool in the Courier newsletter, which we put out about every two or three weeks with Cobalt Press News. Um, you have to really hunt for it. We don't let anyone sign up. You have to scroll all the way down to the bottom of the cobaltpress.com blog, and there's a little field, a dark and dangerous, misty, foggy field to fill out with your email address, and it'll put you on the newsletter, and you can unsubscribe anytime. Uh, but that's where we do our first announcements of our new Kickstarters and contests and the latest installment of Deep Magic and, mm -hmm. and also Magic Scrolls uncovered in Serbia and other yeah. worlds. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. uh, uh, thank you so much for, uh, for being here and now uh, Liz and I are going to throw it over to Liz and I uh, and Jeff and Sam <laughs> uh, to, uh, to wrap up this podcast. So thanks for coming on, guys. Oh, thanks for having us. Oh, thanks for having us on here. It's always a blast, and I love gabbing about design. So, Excellent. All right, and that's the end of this episode. And we want to send a special thank you out to Wolfgang Bauer and Dan Dillon for so kindly being interviewed. And another thanks to James and Liz. And thank you, mm -hmm. everyone else, for supporting the show and uh, shopping from our affiliate links and uh, using Amazon and using the DMs Guild. And uh, thanks, James and Liz. This was a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun. Right on. And, and just so people know where they can find you, James, where can people go to find more James? Uh, people can go right here to the tomeshow.com. Uh, you can have it over to havespellbook.com to check out the radio play podcast I do with Rudy. That's super, super fun. And uh, worldbuilderblog.me for lots of musings and free D&D &D 5e resources and stuff like that. So uh, uh, just doing uh, a thing with uh, Storm King's Thunder right now. Gold any award winning <laughs> worldbuilderblog.me. That's right. I, I don't. I don't know if away. I've heard you you mention that on the podcast yet. That's a big deal. You should be spouting that from the rooftops for years to come. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, uh, usually, uh, someone else manages to mention it for me <laughs> on the podcast. Well, I'm happy to be that person for you this time. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you very much. Uh, so, yes, uh, come check out the work, uh, and uh, and it'll be a pleasure to have you on the blog. So, right. see you there. And Liz, where should people go to look for you? You can find me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Liz Tice, or if it's easier to remember, at Liz the Is. Liz the Is. And we're just going to change your name. Yeah. Tice yeah. is no longer a thing. You, you are just Liz the Is. Liz the Is. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> right on. And that is episode 269, where we slayed our way through a massive tome of horrific beasts in this episode of... The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome.
光是哇。